New Testament and said we're salt to, to the society. And I want you to turn, if you will, in the Old Testament to Jeremiah 29, uh, verse 7, because this was the piece of advice the prophet Jeremiah gave to his generation who would shortly wind up spending the rest of their lives under a Gentile uh, society of Neo-Babylonia. So Jeremiah chapter 29 There's a verse in there. Verse 7. Actually, this verse sets up the thinking that is carried over in the New Testament when we talk about the role of the church. Verse 7 of Jeremiah 29. Again, keep in mind, Jeremiah's writing during the kingdom and decline period So he's preparing the people for the exile. Seek the welfare, the shalom, of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. And now this is the important clause. For in its welfare, you will have welfare. In its shalom, you will have shalom. And the idea there is to pray to the Lord, notice, on its behalf. So, the first thing we notice about verse 7 um, is there's an act of seeking of true shalom for the society in which you live. Um, and you notice involved in the seeking is praying to the Lord on its behalf. We have a right to pray to the Lord on its behalf. And that's one of the salty functions that's going on as believers do this. Um, we will probably, well, we, we won't know the effect of these kinds of prayers in this life, um, but hopefully in, the, in eternity we'll have a chance to kind of have a view graph or something where we see the effect of prayers on the course of history. Um, they had a change of command ceremony at Aberdeen Proving Ground uh, this, um, today, and I try to get some of my guys out there to see what, you know, we work in a military installation and you don't ever see military pomp and circumstance so much in our society, so I like to have my guys go there and see what it looks like, just to remind them what the flag's all about. And um, I was commenting to one of the fellows as they uh, had to pass and review, which is a military formation when uh, everybody's done their thing and it finishes up, uh, There's in, whether it's the Air Force, Army, or Navy, they have what's called a pass and review. And it's a formal military procedure. And you have all the unit flags and so on go by, and then if there are anything else, like uh, armored vehicles or something, which they did today, they'll be parading uh, with the units. While it was going by, I was saying, you know, it's interesting, one of my employees, Christian, and Mark Mitchell goes here, and I was saying to Mark, I said, you know, we can sit here and watch this, and here we see the uh, 51-ton main battle tank driving by, and I said, if you remember in papers years ago, the uh, pictures of the Kremlin, and you'd see the men, the the, uh, Russian armies going by the uh, viewing stand, and you'd see the rockets all in formation and so on. And uh, I said, you know, the last time that was done in the Kremlin Square, um, some Christian seminary students got in the end of the parade, and they had a cross, a big cross of Jesus Christ, and Mikhail Gorbachev was sitting there in the reviewing stand watching all this go on. And as the tanks ended, the column finished, and the passing review was done, uh, these guys were in the tail end of that formation. And they began to chant as they went by to Mikhail Gorbachev in Russian, Christ has risen. Christ has risen. And it's so interesting in the light of the dynamics of the collapse of the Soviet Union that that was the last prayer they had because that was the year that the Soviet Union collapsed. It was the very year that the Christians got into the pass and review uh, officially and yelled out the words that Christ has risen. So we don't know. Um, these prayers, like Jeremiah's talking about, pray to the Lord on his behalf, for in its welfare you will have welfare. And I think one of the things about verse 7 that is sobering is the converse of the last clause. Obviously, the last clause implies 
that you're not going to have welfare if the society in which you're living doesn't have welfare. There's no shalom. And the idea of the welfare or the shalom or peace, as I guess as King James translates it, is a godly peace. Peace, not necessarily where everybody believers, but where the structures of the divine institutions are functioning, where marriage is functioning, where responsibility is functioning. Remember we had those four divine institutions? The first one is responsible labor, that we're not victims, we're responsible people. We have the institution of marriage, the institution of family, and the institution of civil authority. And these, when these are functioning, the Old Testament lingo, it meant they function well in shalom. They're functioning well. So, verse 7 says a lot, and it's just one little verse, but it's a key verse in the Old Testament that sets up how individual believers were to pray and to live. Now, when believers can do more than pray, in the seeking, first verb in that clause, when they can pray and participate, as we are involved in a participatory democracy, um, if you turn to Deuteronomy 4, we have a source of insight for our society. Verse, chapter 4 of Deuteronomy, verse 6. And it's our privilege to introduce wisdom principles. We may have to do it as Daniel did. Remember, the tactic of Daniel in Daniel 1 was he didn't come off saying, this, I say this in the authority of uh, the word of Jehovah. Rather, what he did is he suggested a wise course of action and let it prove out pragmatically. And he's what I call a pragmatic cell. Not that he bought into pragmatism, but it was a pragmatic cell saying, why don't you try it this way? See if it works. Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 6, we have a, another verse in the Old Testament that clearly points out the benefit of the legislative mandates inside the Mosaic law. It says, This is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Verse 8, What great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law that I'm setting before you today? And, again, this class hasn't been a class on the, on the law. We could spend a year and a half going through the book of Deuteronomy, which I've done before. Um, when you do that and you go through the details, you begin to see the word of God spoke to every single area. It spoke to economics. It spoke to things like banking. It spoke to things like loan policies, the issue of collateral on loans. Uh, it spoke to... Uh, the use of the land, the sabbatical rest of business assets, uh, all kinds of stuff are in there. And uh, it spoke, of course, of the theft. It's how you deal with theft. They didn't put all the thieves in jail, by the way. They made them work and restore. If somebody steals something, um, the foolish way we deal with it is that we, first of all, the victim never gets it back. Usually he claims it on insurance, and who pays the premiums on the insurance? All of us. Then the police have to be financed because they have to chase around after all this stuff. Then the guy gets put in prison somewhere, and now we're paying forty, fifty thousand dollars a year for that. Then he's not at his home, so now we have a family on welfare, and we're paying for that. A brilliant solution to the theft problem. Now in the Old Testament. They didn't do that. And the reason they didn't do that is because taxes were limited to 10% of income. I mean, they never could afford to do what we're doing. So they had other ways of coping with it. And God gave this. You know, you go back, people are so hesitant to pick up these themes out of Old Testament law of saying that, oh, well, that's primitive. That's, that's, that's way before our time. I mean, we've evolved higher than that. But what does 8 say? Verse 8, what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law? Now, if you, if you really believe verse 8, then you have to argue that the Mosaic legislation is one of the great normative pieces of legislation in the history of man. And we need to go back to that. So, there are a lot of insights, and I would suggest that verse 8 is an example of how, besides praying for a country, of injecting wise principles, borrowing them uh, out of the Mosaic Law Code. Another example that just comes to mind is 
Have you ever noticed the tax structure in the Old Testament? We're always talking about taxes in this country. One of the most amazing things about taxes in the Old Testament is, first of all, they never tax anything except income. Never tax property. Now, that's not that's a, that's a fine little detail, but there's something to that. And here's what the deal is. Land in the Old Testament was part of a family heritage. It was the security for the old folks because it's where you grew, you grew your grain and you supplied yourself. Now, what would happen if you tax property and somebody who's an older person doesn't have any salary? Well, we all know what happens. They have to sell the property. So the property's lost and fractured because you're taxing an asset, not an income. There are no anti-capital taxes in the Bible. The Bible, when God went to tax his people, he never taxed assets. He never taxed capital. We call those decapitalizing taxes. God never did that. He only taxed income. And when he came to taxing, he never had variable tax rates. He had a flat tax rate. Now, I know the objection, well, the rich need to pay more. Well, in my multiplication tables, if, if I t- get taxed at 10% and I make $1,000, or I make $100,000, it seems to me like if you pay 10% of $100,000, aren't you paying more? So, flat tax rate. And again, this is part of the structure of the law code. And what does verse 8? Verse 8 applies even to taxes. It says, what nation is there as statutes and judgments, righteous its whole law? So the Bible is pro-flat tax. And you think today, of all the bureaucracy and the billions of dollars that are consumed in the economy by just trying to keep records with the intricate tax codes that nobody knows. And the wasted energy, time, and effort flat tax, you could pay it with a postcard. And this is how God ran. So don't demean the Mosaic Law Codes. There's lots of good stuff in here and how they operate. And it really behooves us because few of us ever even bother to read this stuff. It really behooves you. And the best book to read, to pick up these friends, is the book of Deuteronomy. Deuter, the second time the law was given. And just read through that sometime. Make a list. A neat way of doing this to help your observational powers of the text is take a piece of scrap paper, go down through it, and pick off areas of news that you would see here on TV and now read the paper, and say, would this apply to uh, these news stories we have? Would this apply to some of the political issues of our time? And just go through it. And I guarantee you, after you've done through about ten chapters, your page is going to be full. All kinds of neat insights. We haven't begun to exhaust the rich treasure of this, this book. So that's how we can be salt and light. I happen to know people in the House of Delegates right here in Annapolis. And uh, when one of them was uh, elected to office, I bought them a book on the, uh, the, the what's it called? Institutes of Biblical Law by J. Rushton. And in that, it's very neat because you can look in the back any social issue, and you look it up, and it gives you an immediate key as to what the Book of Deuteronomy has. And so I happen to know this particular person has injected these things in discussions in, in Annapolis. So those are ways that we can be shalom. Because these laws work. God ordained them. They have to work. So when they're put into social practice as policies, they work. Okay. So, that tells us about living in the exile. Living outside of the kingdom of God of Israel. No Shekinah glory. God is not present. And so, we're left with this separation issue. Now, what we want to do tonight, we started on page 70 last time. And that is how you sustain a proper mental attitude during these long, centuries-long period when... God isn't speaking. And there are no real prophets. And gee, what do we do now? Uh, A bleak environment in which to live. And we said, that's why we have to have a long-range faith. And this goes back to a technique that I'm going to show tonight through the book of Daniel. But it's a technique I talked about when we started this class three years ago. 
and I've mentioned it from time to time. I think I mentioned about two two Thursday nights back. You'll see when I draw the diagram because you've seen it before. Um, if we have some sort of an issue, the way Scripture deals with these issues is to strategically envelop them inside a biblical framework. So instead of dealing head-on with the issue, if you look at the way Scripture usually handles it, instead of dealing with a head-on approach, what it deals is it surrounds the issue with truth so that all this truth and revelation starts to surround this and cut this problem down to size. That's why the diagram that we've shown you so many times, you know, the good-evil diagram, we'll pull it out tonight. But what have we done there? We said the good-evil issue looks like this from a pagan point of view. Well, in that sense, if we look at the issue that way, it's uncontrolled. It's limitless. We can't do anything about it. But what the Bible does, it brackets evil so that you have a good God. God is good. And then down here, creation was originally good. It fell and then is going to be redeemed so that evil now is contained. It's cut down to size by a prior, larger biblical frame of reference. And that's always the way Scripture works. It envelops a strategic envelopment of the issue. And, of course, the unbeliever wants to strategically envelop us, and we'll have a good instance of that tonight. The basis of the long-range faith is getting the big picture of what God's doing in history, and where do we get that? What was the style of literature that God the Holy Spirit deliberately started just prior to the exiles? Apocalyptic literature. When the inner thoughts of God were revealed in symbolic form all the way to the end of history, he gave us the whole picture in a way that he had not done before. Apocalyptic literature is a new thing. And that's to give us the tools of strategic envelopment so we can handle whatever the problems are. We know the last chapter. And so, therefore, since we know the last chapter, we can back up and contain problems on the way. But we know where the road is. So, we studied that on page 71. You remember I gave two quotes last week of two examples of people that had long-range faith and it makes a people very tough. And you can blow them apart. You can have all the weapons you want to on earth. But they cannot destroy a tough soul. And those are examples of tough souls who absorbed a frame of reference all the way down to the end. They had a total world and life view. And nobody could dislodge it. And the Puritans are the example I gave from the Christian point of view. Now what we want to do tonight is we want to look at Daniel. This time, not so much the specifics, but we want to, and you'll have to probably follow in the notes pretty much tonight, um, because I want to show you a way of thinking about the books. And I picked Daniel because it's so critical when you go to the university or the school and they have a course on the Bible. There's no book in this all of Scripture that's more attacked in the classroom than this book, Daniel. So therefore, we picked it. Genesis comes close, but not as a book. Genesis is just hastily dismissed as a nice mythological story. The reason that Daniel comes in for such an atrocious attack is because the book of Daniel in the four kingdoms, there are four kingdoms in Daniel chapter 2, and then later on in passages like Daniel chapter 8, he's talking about very specific historic details. So the four kingdoms we had were the Babylonians, we had the Media Persians, had Greece, and we had Rome. And the details are so obvious that to an unbeliever, they must have been written after the fact. This can't be prophecy. So you can immediately see why Daniel, with all of its very specific prophecy, has got to be attacked. If I'm a non-Christian, and I don't believe in a God who speaks into history, I've got to get rid of this evidence. Because Daniel is an evidence. It's an objective evidence that God has spoken because there's prophecy there that's fulfilled. And Daniel 8 
there's prophecy about Antiochus Epiphanes. And Antiochus was a Syrian who becomes a, a picture of the Antichrist. The Bible doesn't pick, speak of much of Hitler as a picture of Antichrist. Antiochus Epiphanes. And uh, if you want to go do a biography sometime, you ought to read him. You ought to go read the biography of Antiochus Epiphanes because you'll learn more about what the Antichrist looks like and how he handles himself by just studying the life of Antiochus Epiphanes. One of the things that will shock you about Antiochus Epiphanes is the fact that this guy was a reconciler. Very interesting. Antiochus Epiphanes' policies advocated the reconciliation of all phases of society under, under this envelope of universal values. And in particular, he objected to the Jews because the Jews held to what? As their standard. They held to the word of God. So Antiochus Epiphanes tried to make the Jew into the scapegoat. The Jew was always the problem because these are the people with a long-range hope. They were the tough souls and they wouldn't check in as far as Antiochus' program of everybody getting together with their relativism. See, in other words, to get everybody together, what he had to basically say is everybody's view is great for them and then we'll all get together in a house. And I'll dictate, by the way, said in fine print in footnote 42 that the standards that we will use to reconcile come from me. But Antiochus did that, and he was a very successful politician, and he was a great propagandist. He made the Jews look like they were idiots. He, he made them he spread this, all kinds of stuff around the world saying that these people, they're dangerous, they're obstructionists, they won't reconcile, they insist on their own standards, they're bigoted, and so on, and so on, and so on. And to listen to him, you think he was crying about the Jews. So... He finally got real mad at him one day, and uh, he decided to desecrate one of the places they worshipped. It's a story in the book of Maccabees. And he had a, a pig sacrificed uh, on one of their altars. And, of course, he deliberately did that because he knew that that would non-kosher and that would irritate them. So he deliberately did that because he was trying to break the back of Jewish resistance. Very interesting. So when you want to sometime chase down a biography, go... See if you can find out stuff about Antiochus Epiphanes. What we're going to look at now is, is a doctrine that we studied prior because we've got to say, here's the book of Daniel. Now, what are we dealing with here? Let's go back and, and train ourselves in how to think through an issue. We've got an issue here. There's the specific content of the text. Now it comes in for attack because people are saying, that this can't be the Word of God. It's got to be written after the fact. So, first of all, what do we have to do in our heads? We have to identify the locus of the issue. Now, what is Daniel, besides being Daniel? It's a book of Scripture. And what is Scripture? Revelation. Revelation inspired. Now, where in the framework so far, up to now, over the last two or three years, have we talked about the doctrine of revelation and the doctrine of inspiration. Where did that come up? Remember the event that we linked it to? Mount Sinai. So we go back into the framework and we say to ourselves, in order to deal with the Daniel issue, let's go back and get our head straight. What is revelation? What is inspiration? We've got an inspired book here. We go back to Mount Sinai and we remember we learned certain things, certain characteristics about Revelation. And I list those characteristics on page um, 70, oops, on page 72. So if we keep Mount Sinai in hand, and you look at the first complete paragraph on page 72, here are some of the characteristics we studied way back when we were talking about Mount Sinai. Biblical special revelation has unique characteristics shared with no other human knowledge. All biblical revelation is verbal. It has intellectual content that passes. And you notice I'm defining what verbal means. Very important because you, people go to sleep with words. Verbal, as I'm using it, it has intellectual content 
that passes from God's mind to man's mind rather than being merely uninterpreted raw experience from which the human mind has created meaning. Let's read that slowly again. It has intellectual content that passes from God's mind to man's mind. We want to see what's going on here with this. Um, let me get a folder. It looks like this. Okay. What do we mean? Here's God and here's man. We mean that there's a thought in God's head and it gets transmitted to man. When God says a sentence, I am the Lord God who brought you out of Egypt. That's what he means. I am the God, and I brought you out of Egypt. It wasn't economics that brought you out of Egypt. It wasn't Pharaoh's army that, that fell apart that brought you out of Egypt. It wasn't Moses' scintillating leadership that brought you out of Egypt. It was me. I brought you out of Egypt. So that's an idea, and it's transmitted from God's head to man's head. Revelation is verbal. Now, what's the opposite of this? Now, here's where the grease hits. So watch carefully the rest of that sentence. Because this is how liberal Christians view Revelation and Scripture. It's all wrapped up in this one sentence. It has intellectual content that passes from man's mind, uh, God's mind to man's mind rather than... Now, here's where the grease hits. Being merely uninterpreted raw experience from which the human mind has created meaning. What do we mean by that? Think of Mount Sinai, the picture again back in our framework. Moses goes up on the mountain and you remember the pictures in the Old Testament? He goes up there and there's fire and there's smoke and God speaks. Okay, here's the liberal view of that. So now I'm going to, we're going to come over here. Here's how a liberal, unbelieving person would interpret Mount Sinai. Maybe there was a volcanic eruption or something, but Moses went up to Mount Sinai and there was smoke and there was fire. And it was such an emotional experience for Moses that he began to think. And he thought this stuff up. You see the difference? In the first case, the thought is transferred from God's mind to man's mind. In the second case, where does the thought start? It starts with man. There's no higher thought than just this. Now, that's the liberal position. So, be careful. When we talk revelation, it's the first picture, not the second one. Now, if we're talking with somebody, or this comes up in a classroom discussion, or people in your family believe this way, and you have to figure out where are these people coming from, you've got to figure out how to communicate through this, this garbage here that's all over the place. And the first thing to think about is go back and get the, your head straight on what the scriptures say before you get sucked into an argument and you find out you're playing by the wrong rules. Because if you start here unconsciously and think of these books as just these guys sat down and wrote it, even though, yeah, yeah, God was behind it. But if you don't believe there was an actual transmission of thought from God's mind to man's mind, you already lost the argument. You already lost it. You can't compromise right up at the front end of this thing. You've got to see that there's what the Bible means by revelation. Okay, the second characteristic in that paragraph is it is personal. And what do we mean by that? It means that when God speaks like this, and he booms down, the thought comes into my head, now i got a problem because it's not like I see that if I drop this coin or something, it falls. That's gravity. I can be emotionally detached from that. The problem is, if God speaks to me, I can't be emotionally detached from it because now I've got to listen to him or not listen to him. I don't have a choice. There's no gray area now. So that's what we mean by personal. By personal, we mean that real revelation forces a personal response pro or, pro or con. A third characteristic we mention in that paragraph is that it's public history, not private vision. These are objective historical acts. That's why the last two or three years, you keep seeing me put this stuff up on the board over and over and over again because the, the concepts of truth are anchored to public history. If you say that those events never happened, then the ideas that are associated with those events go down the toilet. That's what happens. 
the whole thing collapses on the right side if the left side collapses. We, can, we have a historic faith. And that's why it's so objectionable we are, fundamentalists, to the rest of society. And particularly are we very objectionable to people who want to synthesize and move Christianity together with Buddhism and New Age and all the rest of it. It's because we're the guys with our foot in cement from their point of view, and we won't move. Everybody else moves. Everybody else is flexible. But it's these doggone fundamentalist, Bible-believing people that just won't move because they keep on insisting that you have to have a literal Abraham, you have to have a literal Exodus, you have to have a literal Sinai, blah, 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 blah. Well, the reason we do is because that was the public arena in which God spoke. So, all of this thing is tied together, and, and then the fifth characteristic, or the fourth characteristic I mentioned here, is the prophetic characteristic. And by prophetic, we mean that revelation addresses areas beyond man's thought. So, not only do we have God's transferring a thought from his mind to ours, but because God is omniscient, he has infinite thought, we have finite thought, and we have a transmission problem here. God has to accommodate our finitude when he talks to us. That's where apocalyptic literature and its symbols come in. In other words, when God goes to speak about something future in time, he's talking by definition about what? So is it something that man has experienced yet or not? Nobody's experienced it yet. He can talk about something past. I am the God who brought you out of Egypt. But if he says, I'm going to bring you back from all the nations on earth and I'm going to bring you back to the land. Now, nobody's experienced that. The Jew had a partial restoration, but it's not happened yet. And if it hasn't happened yet, what are the means? Is he going to bring angels, flying saucers? So how is he going to do this? I mean, we know how he did it in Egypt. We haven't got a clue how he's going to do that because it's all future. And God cloaks the future in his symbols. So that's why there's such high symbol density inside apocalyptic literature. We're actually dealing with the deepest thoughts in the mind of God in apocalyptic literature. That's what makes it hard. God is sharing his heart as much as he can share his heart with finite creatures who haven't yet experienced what his plans are. Hence, the style of revelation. Okay. Now, the problem we get back to Daniel. In the case of Daniel, drawing a timeline, here's Jesus Christ's cross, here's 0 B.C. Daniel's back here between 500 and 400 and 600 this, in this time period, the book of Daniel. Daniel actually is living right in here. So he's dealing, and you count the centuries this way, so... Zero to 100 going here, is, that's the first century, second century. So the year number is the century number finished. So when you get back to 600, that's the sixth century. Now Daniel lived in the sixth century. If this book is genuine, that's when it was produced, in the sixth century. Three of the four kingdoms were done by this period, the second century. So now the debate is, because you see the media Persian Empire, here's the four kingdoms of Daniel. What the liberals do is say, this is Babylon, this is Persia, this is Media, and this is Greece. That's how they get their four kingdoms. They divide them up this way, and then say, they all happen by the second century. So therefore, when do you suppose they put the date of Daniel? After it happened. Second century. So they keep arguing for a second century date for the book of Daniel. Why do they do this? Let's review again. Strategic envelopment method of thinking. What are they trying to do to this book? They're trying to, like a gigantic amoeba, come up here and go slurp it up into their framework. What's their framework? Unbelief. God doesn't speak. There's not a God in history that talks to man. Come on. That's unbelief. So, given that as the premise, they've got to deal with this problem. Daniel presents a real problem. So, your way you just get out of the problem is you maneuver 
and you teach everybody in the classroom that Daniel was a second century piece of literature. All right, we're going to look at now on the bottom of page 72. And I'll follow with me this line of thinking, because if you can master this uh, as quickly as we're doing it tonight, this will give you kind of an inoculation against this higher criticism. You read it about once every two months in the Baltimore Sun. There's usually an article about once every six, six months in Time, Newsweek, some new thought about Exodus, a new thought about Noah. It's the whole thing. It's the same story over and over. But let's train on the hardest problem, which is Daniel. And then we can take the easier ones as they come. According to liberal higher critics, who inhabit most university and seminary faculty positions, Daniel is a pious forgery written around 200 B.C. Its impressive prophecies were all written, they claim, after the fact. Its apocalyptic prophecies that apply to the Persian Greek periods are so stunningly clear that to unbelief they could only have arisen in human minds which already knew the historical details. Connect that with a statement we just got done reading about verbal. In if you don't believe in verbal revelation, where does truth start? In man's mind. So if you have a book here and it's telling you all about history and it came from man's mind, it has to be written after the fact, right? So are they consistent? Is this a consistent argument for the liberal? Absolutely. This is a consistent argument. You cannot fault the logic of the argument. It's the starting point of the argument. That's where the issue is. Okay. The following brief defense of Daniel using material, you can find these in conservative works on Daniel uh, in bookstores. And the sentence is duplicated, page 73, because I changed my word process and so on. I'm going to take two arguments that they use. Because if you, again, just pay attention a little bit to this, the logic, and you'll understand any other book of the Bible. We're just using tonight a quick survey of how the attack comes on Daniel and how you defend against the attack and you can generalize it to all the books. Higher critical attacks upon the trustworthiness of Daniel have focused on two things, history and linguistics. Critics have a prior theory of the Old Testament canon development that helps them explain Daniel as a late addition. Remember I brought the Hebrew Bible in here one time and I showed you there's three parts of the Old Testament canon. Mention the New Testament, the law, the prophets, and the writings. And I said then there's some strange things going on and how you get prophets occur in the book of the writings. Well, what happens is that the liberals hold that the tri... Uh, whatever you want to call it, the triune structure of the canon equals chronologi chronological development. So... All those three parts of the Old Testament canon are sequences in time. Therefore, they say, aha, now we can explain why a prophecy book like Daniel is occurring in the third section. It wasn't written until late. It was too late to get in the second section, so it got in the third section. It's a late writing. But the whole idea is that, is this true? This is the idea they're using. This is the primary idea. And they're trying to use it to support a late date for Daniel. Okay, they say, why is a prophetic book like Daniel in the writings instead of the prophets? Quickly answering their own question, the critics claim that Daniel was written too late to attain canonical status along with Ezekiel and Zechariah, which were canonized in the third century according to this theory. Obviously, this critical attack depends entirely upon the chronological development theory of the Old Testament canon. Such a theory, however, has never been proved. There are other, much more plausible explanations of the Old Testament's tripartite division. One explanation is that the three parts of the canon are not chronological stages at all, but topical classification. The law gives legal instructional material. The prophets give prophetic commentary on the past and future history from the covenant perspective, as we studied. And the writings give wisdom principles for life. Daniel, then, is included within the writings rather than within the prophets, not because it was composed too late for entry, but because it has primarily to do with wisdom principles for living in the totalitarian kingdom of man. Now, just think of what happens here if you think this through. You see how this helps avoid a problem that we fundamentalists have? When you mention the book of Daniel, what, what comes into your head automatically? Prophecy. 
and you're thinking about premillennialism, amillennialism, pre-tribulational, post-tribulational, mid-tribulationalism, three-quarter tribulationalism, and you go through all these different prophetic views, wondering what's going on. And all of a sudden, we get wrapped up in the, into theological technicalities, which, which are fine. We, we eventually have to do that. But what's, we've lost something here. What was the big idea behind this whole book? It was learning principles of how to live now on the basis of knowing then. That's the big principle. And then we can argue on little different cases. But let's not... And then, and then see people go to say, oh, prophecy conferences, that's just, you know, it's unreal, it doesn't apply to life, and it's not really walking by faith, and we demean those things, we don't bond study those things. I want a vibrant faith, I don't want to pay attention to that dry orthodoxy. Well, it's become dry orthodoxy because it never was phrased right in the first place. It can't be dry orthodoxy. The Holy Spirit revealed, what are you saying, the Holy Spirit's dry? not dry orthodoxy. It's truth that he thought, at least, evidently not having the advantage of certain PhD degrees, that he thought that it was necessary for us to learn to live. And that's why it's there. So they're principles for living in the kingdom of man. Besides the historical argument, higher critics of Daniel often imply linguistic arguments. And this I've, I've seen some college students right here in our congregation get knocked off their feet by this stuff. And it's so unnecessary. All you have to do is tear off the mask and look at the logic here. Instead of dealing piecemeal with each and every such argument, and you need to learn to do this yourself, in no way are ever any of us in this room going to master how to argue against Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, the higher critic, this, that, that, something else. You just can't control all the material. So you have to go back to basic, basic principles of approach here. So, we'll just look at the chain of logic used in all of them. Each critical linguistic argument begins with a selected linguistic parameter, such as vocabulary, syntax, proper names, orthography, which varies to a large degree in a known way over time. See, what they want is a dating, a dating scheme. And the way they can get that, if they try to get it, and conservatives are interested in this in some cases, here's the timeline again from zero back to 600 B.C. Let's suppose that... A, a word like for musical instruments. That's the one that always comes up in Daniel. Um, let's say t- take a word for A, B, and C for musical instruments. And let's say that we have evidence that in 300 B.C. those instruments were called A prime, B prime, and C prime. And at the time of Jesus, it was A prime, prime, B prime, prime, C prime, prime. Okay? The, the, the vocabulary is shifting. Same instrument, but it's known by different names down through time. Well, then it's a simple matter. If you can prove that this is happening linguistically, you can say, ah, what vocabulary word is Daniel using? Is he using an A prime prime? Oh, if Daniel calls those instruments A prime prime, then that must mean he's writing late. Um, in that same paragraph, I call, it, I call it some parameter P. It must be one which concerns the actual composition of a book, not subsequent transmission of the book after it's written. In other words, if people began to call this instrument something else and the scribes were copying manuscripts and they modernized the text... And that doesn't show authorship point. That just shows that the scribes who are transmitting the text modernize the script. So you see, it's a little tricky. It gets greasy now. Now, what do I do? Now, how do I tell if this A prime prime is occurring because some scribe updated the text or whether that was in the text all the way to the time of writing? So now, what do you need to know to apply this thing? It looked cool when we first started talking about it. Did you see the problem in applying it? What do you have to know besides this? You have to know the history of the transmission of the text to check when did the changeover occur. Was it before or after? So I've got to say, if Daniel wrote it at this time, I've got to get manuscript samples all down here to figure out did it come in through the transmission of the scripts or did it come in when the book was written? 
and all of a sudden we get into the messy business. If some parameter P varies sharply from century to century, then it can be used. Okay, now we're on page 74. The problem with every critical argument advanced so far is that an adequate P cannot be defined. Items such as syntax vary not only with time, but here's something else. They vary with the style of literature. You can have different style literature, and for example, a good example of this one is the Book of Ecclesiastes. Book of Ecclesiastes is thought, because it occurs also in the third section, see, third section of the canon. Oh, that, that's not Solomon talking. Oh, no, it can't be Solomon. Ecclesiastes has to be, I mean, it's got ideas from Greek philosophy in it. I mean, you can't have a guy like Solomon anticipating Greek philosophy. I mean, that would mean he was smart. So, therefore, the book has to be written late. And so, when we talk about a late writing, we say, ooh, look at that. The book of Ecclesiastes uses certain vocabulary that was used popularly in the second and third century. But the problem is, the book of Ecclesiastes is a wisdom piece of literature. And when you look at Egyptian wisdom literature, hundreds of years before Solomon, it uses the same style. Oh, wow. See what happens? Now we're talking literary genre. So besides a time problem, look at the problem we got here. We've got to say composition or transmission. That problem has got to be answered before you can use this stuff to date anything with. And you can't answer this question until you have the manuscripts in front of you. And those manuscripts have to be dated. The second problem is we have what we call a genre. The literary genre uses different stylistic vocabulary. And just that's the way it is. People speak different ways when they speak in a different style. And when they talk differently for different words, like poetry today, you'll see... English words in poetry that are archaic. You'd never see some of that vocabulary in prose. Look at some of the hymns that we sing in church every Sunday. In order to make the lyrics work with the notes, the guy had to use different kind of words in there. But you and I don't go out in the street and use some of that, those words that are in that hymn book. They're artificially constructed because of the hymns. Does that mean that this guy wrote 500 years ago? No, it just means that he, when he wrote it 10 years ago, that's how he had to structure it to fit the music. Style controls vocabulary. So, needless to say, the problem is that you, it, it makes a very seductive-sounding approach. And students by the carload get sucked into this the first time they hear it in the college class, and they really buy in, oh, this is tremendous. But you're not seeing the logic of the whole thing. Okay. Now, on the other side of the issue, what do we have? Recently, manuscripts of the Book of Daniel, which were found at Qumran, were dated back to 120 B.C. Now, that dating occurs because of pottery and so on. So now look what happens on the time scale. This is 150, half 300 to zero. So 120 is about here. So now we've got a manuscript all the way back to 120. And these are the guys in the Qumran caves that are doing this. And here's the problem. Guess where they found the scrids of manuscript? They found them in urns. And what else did they find with those pieces of literature? Book of Isaiah, Ezekiel, the book of the Moses. Well, now, what does that suggest? That these guys had Daniel in their Bible? Doesn't it kind of suggest? I mean, it's right there in the same urn. So, presumably, the text of the book of Daniel was considered scripture by 120 B.C. Well, if it had just been written, scripture is hard, you know, it takes time for it to be recognized officially. So, if we have evidence at 120 that Qumran, people at Qumran were using Daniel on an equal basis with Ezekiel and the other guys, then that assumes that it had to be the, the date of composition had to be driven back at least a century or so. Now, if that were so, guess what that does to the Antiochus Epiphanes prophecy in Daniel 8? It makes it a prophecy. So, you can't have it both ways here. You have to argue, the liberal now has to argue that the scrids were accidentally 
placed along with Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah because you can't admit that the scrids would be part of the same Bible that the other scrids are. Because if he does, now he's lost the date on Daniel and he needs a late date on Daniel to keep his unbelief going. Okay? Um, and that's why the end of paragraph, that paragraph on page 74, if it was indeed written prior to 165, then it clearly contains specific prophecy of Antiochus Epiphanes, and thus the heart of higher critical anti-supernaturalism is destroyed. Another evidence for the early authorship of Daniel is the fact quoted by Mattathias in the book in the Apocrypha, First uh, Maccabees 2:15. This is the book, Apocrypha. I have a copy of it right here. We talked about it last week. This is not apocryphal literature. This is the Apocrypha. And it's a, it's a story of what went on in, the, in, in between the Testaments of the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's a, you can buy it in the bookstore. Um, it's interesting from the vocabulary standpoint. It explains a lot of background for the Old Testament or for the New Testament and why people thought the way they did. Um, but let me just read to you part of this book so you can get a little flavor of it. 1 Maccabees chapter 2, verse 51. Okay, this uh, is in the chapter, a very famous chapter in Jewish history. First Maccabees 2 is a story of Mattathias, who was a, the, he was the leader who rebelled against the Greeks and the Seleucids. The Seleucids were a group of royalty that the Greeks deposited in Palestine, and they left them there, kind of. Antiochus Epiphanes was part of that. And the Jews had enough of that stuff. When Antiochus Epiphanes decided he was going to sacrifice a pig on a Jewish altar, that did it. And so you have Mattathias. And um, here's what Mattathias says. Even if all nations that live under the rule of the king obey him and have chosen to do his commandments, departing each one from the religion of his fathers. See what Antiochus was trying to do? Forerunner of the Antichrist. What does it say he's trying to do? trying to get them all to depart from the religions of their fathers. Let's all join in one big happy family. It used to be called the Tower of Babel. Yet I and my sons and my brothers will live by the covenant of our fathers. Far be it from us to desert the law and ordinances. We will not obey the king's words by turning aside from our religion to the right hand or to the left. See why the Jews were always a pain in the neck to people? They were these stubborn people that adhered to the Bible. They didn't care how many spears you had. Go ahead, kill me. I'm still going to believe. And, and it gives you a sense now for the setup for the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what well, this book is great to, to understand. And when Jesus came, by the way, and he said the kingdom of God is at hand, he wasn't talking about some spiritual kingdom. He was talking about a real physical kingdom. Spiritual, yes, in character. But he was talking about physical. That's the way the kingdom would have been understood. And so, Mattathias went out. When he finished speaking these words, a Jew came forward in the sight of all. What a dramatic thing. You talk about a great theme for a movie. Listen to this one. When he finished speaking these words, a Jew came forward in the sight of all to offer sacrifice upon the altar at Modin according to the king's command. So here you have a turncoat Jew. And he's going to go ahead and say, well, the authorities said this has got to be done, so all right, I'll do it. When Mattathias saw it, he burned with zeal and his heart was stirred. He gave vent to righteous anger. He ran and he killed him on the altar. At the same time, he killed the king's officer who was forcing him to sacrifice. Then he tore down the altar. And thus he burned with zeal as Phineas did against Zimri, the son of Salu. And Mattathias cried out in the city to everybody, saying, Let everyone who is zealous for the law and supports the covenant come out with me. And as he and his sons fled to the hills and left all they had in the city. And that's the story of the Jewish Maccabean revolt. That's how it got started. It got started over a pig that was tried to be sacrificed on an altar. And Mattathias said, That's it. That's it. I'm not going to do it. Well, as this goes on now, now we come to the passage of interest for us because he's trying to rally this army. He's this rebel leader and he wants to get all these Jews that are discontent, who are taking their lives in their hand, by the way, because the Greeks were cruel, just as cruel as the Romans. 
So he's got to fortify them. Remember? Long-range hope. So guess what he does? Listen to the text. Remember the deeds of the fathers, which they did in their generations, and received great honor and an everlasting name. Now let's listen to this recital and think of what we have done over the last two or three years. Think back through, well, we won't go into the covenant, but think back through to the slide that I just showed, this one. And remember I said, people ask, well, why would you pick these events? Well, listen to this. Here's one of the famous speeches. Here he is now rallying his army. Now, who does he cite and what doctrines does he think about? Was not Abraham found faithful when tested and it was reckoned to him as righteousness? Joseph, in the time of his distress, kept the commandment and became Lord of Egypt. Phineas, our father, he's quoting this because of the priesthood, because he was deeply zealous, received the covenant of everlasting priesthood. That's the Levitical covenant given in Moses at Mount Sinai. Joshua, because he fulfilled the command, became a judge in Israel. Does it sound like they're using the framework here a little bit? Heard of Abraham. We've heard of Exodus. We've heard of Sinai. We heard of Joshua, conquest and settlement. Caleb, because he testified in the assembly, received an inheritance in the land. David. Oh, now we're back up to the rise and reign of David. David, because he was merciful, inherited the throne of the kingdom forever. Elisha, because of the great zeal for the law, was taken up into heaven. Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael believed and were saved from the flame. And where does that come from? Book of Daniel. Oh. Now, isn't this interesting? The date of this is 167. He was dead. This guy died in 167. So let's go back to our timeline. Here he is doing this great biblical speech on the acts of God, he's quoted Abraham. Let's review again. Abraham, Joseph, Phineas, Joshua, Caleb, David, Elisha, and Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. Now, does that sort of suggest that by 167, now we've pushed the timeline over here now. In 67, he died, so it's got to be closer to 200. Now we're back to 200. We've got it. Here's the objective text. It's in the nearest bookstore. Next verse. Daniel, because of his innocence, was delivered from the mouth of lions. See the ammunition that he's using to fortify the mental attitude of his army? He reaches back into Jewish history, a history which, in this case, identifies Daniel along with David. So that's one of the evidences we have to show that Daniel was fully accepted in his day as authoritative and part of the canon. I want to close this section on the, um, uh, the exile and the, and the uh, long-range view and the apocalyptic literature and the fact that judgment's coming upon the Gentile nations by turning now to a New Testament passage and paying attention to a verb in that New Testament passage. It's a passage we all know. It's in 1 John 2. First John chapter 2, verse 17. Or let's look at verse 16. Because the exile ultimately deals with how to live in the world system. World of flesh and the devil. This is the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the prideful boast of life, is not from the Father, but from the world. Now look what he says. Watch carefully the verb tense. And the world passed away, or the world shall pass away, or is it the world is passing away? It's not a past tense. It's not a future tense. It is a present tense. You see the implication of the present tense there? The world is passing away in its lusts, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. You see, that is the result of thinking apocalyptically. The fact is that the judgment wheels of God are already turning. It is a doomed pagan structure out there. It's coming apart. We know whether it was a thousand years ago or today, or next week, or a hundred years from now. It is passing away. It is not permanent. Only the kingdom of God is permanent. Only the word of God is permanent. 
Everything else is just water rushing around, going from one thing to the next. So the conclusion we want to come to out of the exile and how to live is live as though the world system is passing away. See, that's what the apocalyptic vision does for us. It gives us the confidence that if we stand on God's ground, we'll last. We'll outlast it. Everything that we rush to do this, do that, and the whole world wants us to do this, and all these other things that are so urgent. But the whole thing, that's what we're saying, the whole thing is passing away. Father, we thank you for the warning from Scripture. We ask that you would embed this into our hearts, into our minds, because we know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, and we can only believe and have stability when we know that of a truth that abides. And we pray that this picture that you've given us through the exile of your people, looking forward down the quarters of time and seeing that your hand has already ordained the total elimination of those four kingdoms and the replacement of them with the kingdom of your son. May this give us incentive and motive and encouragement to look askance at the world system and remind ourselves when we feel ourselves getting drawn into it and just getting seduced and enticed to back away and think that it is passing away. In Christ's name.